The year was one of violent labor troubles and strikes. San Francisco's general strike gripped the city in a death-like clutch. While an auto accessory worker strike in Toledo, state guardsmen had to resort to tear gas, lead, and cold steel to curb the temper of the strikers. In Minneapolis, a truck driver strike was climaxed by severe riots and fights between the strikers and the police with many casualties. Warfare in the streets, civic strife at its worst. Hello, and welcome to 1934 Mill City Revolt. I am your host, Kelly Cable. The victory of the coal yard strike boosted the spear to the Minneapolis working class. Hundreds of coal truckers now sported 574 buttons. For the first time in decades, a union had beat the Citizens' Alliance where it counted most, in the streets. Not resting on its laurels, Local 574 continued to organize and expand, seeking workers beyond the coal yards, likely colliding with the Citizens' Alliance once again in the future. To the chagrin of the conservative labor bureaucrats, the strike also raised the visibility of the Communist League and its members' roles in leading the strike. Shortly after these events, the Communist League hosted a meeting about the need for a revolutionary party to fight capitalism and for socialism, hoping to locate the most militant of the young coal yard workers to help further the Teamsters' organizing drive. Because of the personal connections forged, a number of coal yard workers attended, including Farrell Dobbs, who had just been fired due to his role in the strike. In this action, in the words of Dobbs, boomerang. Those fired from their jobs would need them come autumn due to depression conditions, so to get those jobs back, they went all in to union organizing. Dobbs had heard talk about the Dunn brothers being communists, which intrigued him because of the leadership Grant and Miles had displayed during the strike, particularly in how they had exposed the anti-worker tactics of the police and the labor boards. As Dobbs said, quote, they appeared to know what had to be done, and they had the guts to do it, end quote. Following a meeting, Dobbs visited a nearby bar where he saw Miles Dunn. After some small talk, Dobbs pointedly asked, are you a communist? What the hell's it to you? I heard that you are. If it's so, I guess that's what I want to be. Apparently convinced, Miles and his brother Grant brought him to a private meeting at Carl Skoglund's home, where he met Ray Dunn for the first time. He was set up with Skoglund, who introduced him to the finer points of Marxism, to which once Dobbs joined the Communist League in March, he would become a lifelong adherent. Truck drivers outside the coal yards now saw the utility of union organizing and began to join in droves, especially when attending union socials and Sunday night forums. Freddie DeBoer, the captain of the cruising pickets in February, recalled the city's truck drivers visiting the Central Labor Union asking, where is that union that organized the coal drivers? The organizers were also more proactive, visiting the city's garages, docks, and warehouses to find truck drivers, helpers, and inside workers who may be eager to join the local. They'd also ask workers about their grievances, adding specific demands for each trucking section to what would become a proposed collective bargaining contract. These demands included wage scales, 40 to 48 hour work weeks plus overtime, no split shifts, pay for garage to garage time, regular break tests at the company's expense, no chiseling on pay by juggling job classifications, and full wages to be paid regularly. Another demand included no liability for damaged merchandise. One truck driver, Ori W. Norton, later recalled in an interview his introduction to trade union organizing. Norton had grown tired of the practice of deducting damages from workers' wages. He knew of one truck driver with six kids who had dropped a washing machine during its delivery. The company demanded $150 from its wages, 
the equivalent of over $2,500 today. Norton recalled his thoughts at the time, quote, The Union looked like a better way. I had never encountered it before. You see, we are not born radical or anything else like that. But when you see things like that, it pretty near makes you radical. I don't classify myself as a radical, but you look over the hardships, it is just unbelievable that this country could go into anything like the Depression, end quote. Norton was thus primed for unionization when 574 President Bill Brown showed up to his workplace, Murphy Transfer, which still exists today as Murphy Warehouse. Afraid of what was to come in the wake of the whirlwind strike, Murphy Transfer called the police on him, although Brown left before the cops arrived. But Ori Norton still met up with them later and was convinced to join the union along with his co-worker Ted Rogers, a World War I vet who had been sent to France at the age of 15. Norton said, quote, If you see something that is going to help the majority of people, you will get into it too. Everybody was an organizer. Everybody. End quote. Indeed, once Norton and Rogers joined, they returned to Murphy Transfer and recruited an additional 60 drivers to Local 574. This helped show the coal yard driver leadership that the rank and file could be trusted to carry the cause. Also following the strike, the Communist League helped the upholsterers strike. So I have to issue a correction to an earlier episode in which I stated that the Citizens Alliance had crushed two strikes prior to the Teamsters. In fact, they defeated the one strike by the amalgamated clothing workers, but the upholsterer strike remained in limbo. Like the Teamsters, the Communist League believed the upholsterers had been betrayed by the AFL and the labor boards, quote, a sad illustration of where illusions in Roosevelt's New Deal would lead, end quote. But while they emerged somewhat successful, just like the Teamsters in February, it did not, however, lead to an organizing drive. Historian Philip Korth suggests that this confirmed the Trotskyist perspective that trucking and local 574 in particular were more promising launching points for mass unionization than the craft and skill-based shops, whether upholsterers or millers. Beyond the strikes, the city's unemployed were also making themselves heard in the streets of the city. In the winter of 1934, Minneapolis was home to 30,000 jobless workers. The unemployed movement had been dominated so far by the Communist Party, those who had expelled Dunn and Skoglin back in 28, through the Unemployed Council and United Relief Workers Association, the URWA. The Communist Party preferred an organization of only the unemployed, keeping out the labor unions to whom they were completely antagonistic. The Trotskyists of the Communist League, on the other hand, wanted to build a united front through the Minneapolis Center Council of Workers, MCCW, that would bring the unemployed together with the labor unions, co-ops, the Socialist Party, their own Communist League, and even the former Labor Party. This was because, as the Communist League wrote in the newspaper The Militant, quote, the interests of the organized and the unorganized, the employed and the unemployed workers are identical. We believe that the struggle of the unemployed has only begun and should bring the entire working class movement to the active support of the unemployed, end quote. The Communist Party's hold on the movement, however, made it difficult for the Trotskyists to break through. The unemployed movement was a national phenomenon, particularly strong in New York City and Chicago, in which protests, marches, and riots against lackluster relief efforts and evictions from landlords. These occurred regularly throughout the Great Depression, and Minneapolis was no exception. In the first week of April, the Communist Party-led URWA led a mass demonstration at the Minneapolis Welfare Board, protesting what they called the starvation program of the Roosevelt administration. Specifically, they protested the end of the Federal Employment Program, the Civil Works Administration, and its replacement, which they viewed as being worse. 
The protesters crowded the courthouse, demanding a 40% increase in relief rates and the continuation of the CWA. The police attacked the demonstrators with tear gas, to which some demonstrators threw the canisters back at the courthouse windows, smashing them. The city council was meeting to hear the demands of the 23-member committee of unemployed, but all 23 were arrested outside. Seven workers were injured, as well as eight cops. The plight of the city's unemployed, which included Beryl Dobbs and Ray Dunn, would be necessary to consider in Local 574's labor organizing drive. On March 16th, 574 formalized the Voluntary Organizing Committee, which had so far operated outside the official structures of the local. The organizing committee now consisted of all the executive board members, including the conservatives, as well as Farrell Dobbs, Harry DeBoer, Miles Dunn, Grant Dunn, Carl Skogland, Chris Moe, who was a rank-and-filer I quoted in the previous episode, among several others. This is not to say that tensions did not remain simmering within the local between the conservatives and the more radical elements, including Bill Brown. According to Farrell Dobbs, the conservative wing considered the February strike to be a fluke and not a sign of rising class consciousness. They suggested only printing leaflets and recruiting a few new dues payers. One executive didn't want to even spend the money to print the leaflets, saying because everyone should know where they were, if they wanted to join, those workers could just visit the office. A major problem the radicals faced was that these quote-unquote incompetent union executives remained the official strike negotiators, and thus held the potential to undermine whatever was won by the pickets in the streets. What Dobbs called a dual leadership had emerged within the local, with the rank and file backing Brown, Dunn, and Scogland, and they would have to figure out a way to sideline the conservatives in the battles to come. In the meantime, Dobbs infiltrated a Citizens' Alliance meeting, posing as a quote-unquote cockroach boss. The CA leaders reported to their membership that a communist plot was afoot to unionize all the workers and take over the city. They had even investigated the union to identify the five communists that were among the lead organizers. The CA assured its membership that they were already working with Mayor Bainbridge and Police Chief Johannes to help put a stop to it. This signaled to Local 574 that the Citizens' Alliance was not only well aware of their efforts and successes, but that they recognized the implications of widespread unionization during a time of radicalization. Their major initial attempt to forestall the strike failed, however. The CA convinced the trucking and warehousing industries to raise their minimum wages to 50 cents per hour, or 9.31 in today's money, which was 11% above what the National Industrial Recovery Act established for the sector. The entire trucking industry in Minneapolis agreed to adopt this wage scale by May 1st, but this did nothing to slow 574's momentum. The workers remained undivided. By April 1st, Local 574 had 2,000 members. During all of this, 300 ice wagon drivers, members of one of the craft-based locals of the Teamsters, led a short-lived strike at the end of March and beginning of April. They charged their employers of not restoring their wages after taking voluntary cuts during a slow business season. Here, the Regional Labor Board negotiated with the Citizens Alliance, asking the strikers to return to work which they voted to do, having extracted a small concession. As the coal season came to an end, 574 and the Trotskyists needed to change tactics. With the spring arriving soon, the organizers began to look at gasoline, as well as the warehousing and distribution of perishable fruits and vegetables, as key trucking areas to organize. By expanding beyond the coal yards, the Trotskyists were once again taking advantage of the general driver local's role as the miscellaneous collection of drivers who are not yet unionized in high enough numbers to be given their own craft-based local, 
such as the milk drivers and ice wagon drivers. Thus, they had in mind transfer companies, building material firms, wholesale houses handling fruit, produce, and groceries, package delivery outfits, fleet drivers in the taxi field, the delivery end of department and furniture stores, oil companies including filling stations, oxygen and acetylene suppliers, excavation, lumber, sand and gravel, ready-mix concrete, etc. Scoglin later recalled 34 different sections with their own elected committees that would represent them before, during, and after the strike. As discussed at length in a previous episode as well, 574 wanted more than just the drivers and their helpers. They wanted an industrial union that crossed craft lines. They wanted warehouse workers, shipping room employees, gas station fillers, packers, checkers, weighers, dispatchers, and counter and platform workers. The socialists wanted to unite the city's working class, not divide them based on the commodities that they handled. The committees would represent their particular interests. Local 574 as a whole would represent the interests of the working class as a whole. In April, the organizing committee proposed a public mass assembly to drive momentum towards a strike. Even the locations split the conservatives and the radicals. The radicals proposed the Schubert Theater, formerly owned by the mayor. It was more expensive, but larger, than what the conservatives suggested, which was just the labor headquarters. When Miles Dunn and Bill Brown suggested asking attendees, as well as other unions, to contribute to the $66 rental fee, the radicals won the vote of the committee. The program for the mass assembly was also controversial, but from the perspective of the left, not the right. Should the former labor governor, Floyd B. Olson, be invited to speak? This possibility also came from the Trotskyists, despite their opposition to him. There were a number of reasons to justify the decision. His presence would increase turnout, given his widespread support among the city's working class. 574 could put him on record as supportive of their organizing campaign, and the former Labor Party had just released its radical platform I quoted at length in Episode 3. If the party was advocating for the appropriation of industry, the Teamsters could put the party to the test in view of its working class and farmer base. They therefore extended the tactics developed in the February strike. Rather than outright attacking conservative union leaders or the governor, the organizers would aim their fire at the bosses and ask Olson, whose side are you on? The Trotskyists were fairly well aware that Olson would ultimately fail to help them. He may have spouted bombastic anti-capitalist rhetoric, but he was also concerned with law and order. Whether or not the organizing leaders were explicit enough with the rank and file that this was a possibility remains a matter of dispute, an issue we will return to later in the series. Olson was initially reluctant to speak, but agreed to the proposal in the end. 574 distributed leaflets around the city, advertising the mass assembly, listing Governor Olson as speaking on the right to organize. On April 15th, workers and sympathizers packed the Schubert Theater. Grant Dunn gave an organizing report, followed by Bill Brown and Miles Dunn, who, quote, gave fighting talks that really whipped up the workers' enthusiasm, end quote. Farrell Dobbs spoke publicly for the first time. He was, quote-unquote, scared stiff. But Skogelin had advised him to present himself as he was, a young worker facing hard times with family responsibilities, just like most of the audience. Dobbs said he just managed to get by. Governor Olson, however, did not show. Instead, his private secretary, Vince Day, brought a signed letter from the governor. Day himself gave a militant talk on his own behalf, then read Olson's message, which included the following statement, quote, The union idea, and I don't mean the company union, is fundamentally sound. Vested interests have gone the limit in their attempt to defeat the union idea, 
because they know that complete unionism means the end of the reign of exploitation of the working man and woman. However, labor has weathered gunfire, injunctions, and prosecution by malicious propaganda and has built up a network of unions that forms the most powerful single organization in our country. It is my counsel, if you wish to accept it, that you should follow the sensible course and band together for your own protection and welfare. End quote. As supportive of the organizing drive as the statement was, a quote-unquote sensible course was impossible to sustain. But the Trotskists got what they wanted, a huge turnout and the governor on their side, at least on paper. Following the messages from Vince Day and Floyd Olson, the organizers called for a recess to accept union applications. Local 574, which at this time last year numbered less than 100, had grown to over 3,000 members. Simply put, the conservatives were wrong to think that February was a mere fluke. When the meeting recommenced, Skoglin outlined the next steps. Local 574 would ask the rank and file to authorize a strike, and if so, elect a strike committee, which would determine the negotiating deadline for a strike to commence. The decision to authorize a strike was unanimous. Their demands? A minimum wage of 56 cents per hour, or roughly 10.50 an hour today, a 40-hour work week with paid overtime, plus sector-specific improvements in working conditions. And, of course, the closed shop. This would mandate every worker in the firms they struck against to be a member of Local 574. Given the history of the Citizens' Alliance, as discussed in Episode 2, the local knew that union recognition alone would be insufficient. The CA walked all over the unions in the open shops. What Local 574 needed to do was ensure the unionization of the city's working class so as to fight for more later. But the Citizens' Alliance was equally well aware of the danger that a closed shop posed to them. Thus, each side would need to go all out, and to do so, each combatant needed to prepare its forces, which we will cover in the next episode. This is 1934 Mill City Revolt, and I am your host, Kelly Cable. Thank you for listening.